And now, here's your host, Alex Litwack. Welcome. With me today is Angela Dawn. She is a certified end-of-life doula, which is something I know very little about, so I'm totally excited that you're here. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Alex. I'm really excited to be here. So I know that people use doulas when they are birthing a baby to assist them in bringing this new life form into the world, whether it's screaming and kicking or quiet and peaceful. But you are at the other end of the line. How did you get into this? Yes. Sort of my initial experience has been very experiential. Um, My mother was uh, diagnosed with an aggressive form of lung cancer when I was in high school. Um, And we really had a difficult time um, really understanding our options for her. So she sort of went through the Um, traditional course of treatment, you know, chemotherapy, radiation, and um, it really took a toll on her. And she she did go into a remission for a short time um, around the holidays of 2004, which was the year I graduated high school. You know, if anybody's ever been through a cancer journey, when you when you find out you're in remission, your loved one's in remission, you sort of get that sigh of relief and you feel like you're out of the woods. and so we sort of were in that space of thinking we're out of the woods. And then a few months later, she felt a lump in her spine. And um, the cancer had came back in her spine. And typically when that happens, the prognosis isn't very good. Um, so she continued to go through her, her treatment options, you know, chemo. Um, she actually had surgery to remove one of the lobes of her lungs. Um, but she got to a point where it was not really being successful anymore. And she was in and out of the ER constantly with uncontrolled pain, um, uncontrolled nausea. And us being a really small sort of family unit, we just, we've really found that everything that happened was really a surprise. We really didn't know how to cope. Um, So it turned out that she was admitted to the ER again. And I was sort of demanding to the nurses at this point that she just, why can't she just be comfortable? Um, Why aren't we really talking about quality of life and and comfort care. And mind you, I'm only 19 years old. Um, So how I really even knew to to advocate for that, I'm not exactly sure. I just know that seeing her suffering was not okay. Um, So I actually ended up going home and looking up hospice in the phone book back when we used to use phone books. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) a long time ago. Pre-Google, and there was no looking at reviews or anything of that nature. Um, But that was all I knew to do. And they came and they admitted her the same day. And um, she was taken to a hospice facility where she passed exactly 14 days later. So it was very fast from that point on. So that was sort of my initial experience was with my mother's care. And then as I got older, I mean, really my 20s were just me in in a sense of grieving and not really sure what direction to take my life in. Um, I was in the dental field for a while, so I was sort of in the healthcare industry, and then I moved to Indianapolis in 2014, and I had an opportunity to uh, work in the elder care industry, Um, and it was for a non-medical home care company that helped to provide um, sort of help at home for seniors to keep them living safely and independently at home, so I was in charge of um, helping these families to, to develop care plans. Um, to help keep their loved ones safe at home. 
Um, and that was a great experience and it was very eye-opening to me because it's not only for seniors, it's for people who just need extra help at home and some of these patients are end of life. Um, and so it was sort of that aha moment that I had no idea that those sorts of resources existed to help keep people at home who might wanna be dying at home. And it really just made me think back to our situation and, and maybe had we had these resources, maybe we could have done, you know, done it differently or better. Um, and then from there, I actually got recruited to work for a hospice organization and really just found my passion in working with end-of-life care and really wanted to um, help educate communities about, you know, what is hospice, how can you receive better end-of-life care services, um, and help people really advocate for their needs. So that's sort of how I've, I got into it initially. Out of something pretty awful yeah. came a life purpose. So that's pretty cool yeah. for you. I think hospice has changed over the years. In the old days, it was you had to be dying and you had to have less than six months to live. I don't think those are the rules anymore. So the criteria is still that um, according to your doctor, your doctor has to certify that without any aggressive therapy that you will die in six months or less. However, that's not always the length of life for somebody. We've had clients on hospice care for over a year, for even over a year and a half or two years. So there's just, there's certain criteria that you have to, you basically have to recertify um, every 60 or 90 days to continue to meet the criteria. Um, and you're right, you know, it has changed a lot. There's so many different um, adjunct services that are now added to hospice care. Um, for example, I'm also a massage therapist and I specialize in working with end-of-life patients. So that's one role um, that I also take with my patients is offering that gentle touch massage to reduce some of the pain and, and the anxiety and um, even isolation uh, related to end-of-life issues. So we, we are seeing that, you know, they're offering more services than before too. Specifically as a doula, somebody calls you in, the family calls you in. What do you do and are you working with the hospice people? That's a great question. My role with the patient is different depending on if hospice is involved and if they're not. So it kind of can depend on who gives me the referral. Um, if, it's, if I'm working with a patient that's already on hospice care, um, I like to remind my clients that hospice is still the, the medical manager of, of your care. I'm not coming in to um, necessarily take over or, or go above and beyond what my role as a doula is. Um, so my role is really just to provide sort of some, we're sort of filling in the gaps in hospice care. Um, there's sort of a misnomer that when hospice is involved that they're there or they're present 24-7. And that's not really the case. Um, typically, you know, they're there a few hours a week. Um, you have a nurse that's coming in and they're checking your vitals and, and you have a social worker who's sort of helping you throughout. Maybe you need to go through um, a process to apply for benefits or, or um, maybe some kind of social counseling support, those t that nature of those sort of things. Um, but they're not always there. It's really the caregivers in the family who are taking care of that dying loved one. And you have to remember that because people usually elect hospice very late on in the process, that there's a lot to learn and there's a lot to absorb about how to care for somebody who's dying. And if you've never been through that before, it can be extremely scary. I like to say we have a, a high level of death literacy 
um, we can really help guide you through that and know sort of what to expect, um, you know, maybe as the body shuts down. And hospice does this too. But I think that sometimes we have to hear something. They say we have to hear something like eight to ten times before we really get it. And um, I think that's very true, especially when you're in a, um, a high-stress situation where you're trying to learn a lot. Um, so we're there sort of for that support. Um, and then again, just, you know, directly with the patients, just having, you know, giving them somebody to confide in or talk to. Um, we can also do things like legacy projects, um, maybe doing some kind of a life review, you know, helping them to write letters to their families. Um, maybe they want to write their own obituary, you know, things like that, that hospice doesn't really have the time to sit and do, you know, for several hours on end with somebody where I, I'm not limited to how much time I can spend with somebody. So how much time do you tend to spend with somebody? It's, it's very different depending on the case. Um, I always offer my services. I'm available as much or as little as you want me. Um, it's, it's usually by the hour that I make myself available, you know, anywhere as little as from an hour to, you know, three hours. Generally people don't have me there, you know, for several hours on end, although I can be available to sit vigil for somebody, for example, um, sort of during their final hours of death. I think generally the family wants to, really wants to, to take on that piece. So my piece as a doula is really more about empowering the family than coming in and necessarily doing all the work, if that makes sense. My experience with family, with friends, just of people talking about this is that most people find death not something they want to discuss. <laughs> they don't want to talk about it, even if they're very ill or someone they love is very ill. And their fear overrides everything else. How do you help people get yeah. past some of that? Yeah, and I think that's a great point. Um, coming, it's, it's a totally different story to come to terms with our own mortality. You know, personally, like say you, if you are aging or you have some kind of a life-limiting illness or you, I mean, COVID-19, for example, like if you're at risk of that, um, it's a totally different thing to be wanting to talk about your own death where talking about maybe somebody else's or in, in sort of a general terms is very hypothetical. And, oh, it's not me, it's them. Um, you know, so I have a lot of, you know, compassion for how difficult the conversations are. Um, but what I tell people is that it's such a gift. It's a gift to have the conversation in advance and to plan ahead because, I mean, I can tell you from my experience with my mother, we really didn't have those conversations. And it left a lot of burden on me as the daughter to have to make those, those you know, decisions to, you know, call in hospice where, you know, I sort of thought I was doing the right thing, but I wasn't 100% sure. So it was... It was a burden on me to, to think, oh, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. So I think that can be extremely difficult for families to feel like they have to make the decision for somebody where wouldn't it be better if that person directly can tell you, hey, this is what I want or this is what I don't want. And so it's very clear and there's no guessing game, you know, in a time where everybody's very highly emotional and you're trying to... Um, 
you know, sort of get things in order, you know, it's really nice to have some clarity, at least on some decision making. I give people sort of different exercises and tools, and there, there are a number of tools online. Um, such as? Such as, um, one is called The Conversation Project. Dot, I believe it's .org, where there's a number, there's like a conversation starter toolkit that can kind of help get you started. Um, or, you know, some people like kind of the DIY aspect, like, hey, just send me to a website, let me explore it on my own. Um, and so I, I like to offer resources like that. And then if you want to dive in deeper, it is nice to work with, a, with an end-of-life doula who can sort of help you really facilitate that conversation as a family. Um, maybe give you some other scenarios to think about that are pertinent to you in your situation um, or on a personal level. I know it's hard and, and tears will be shed. And I think that's the important thing to keep in mind is it's okay to cry and it's okay to be sad. Um, it, I think we live in a society where we try to shun some of those feelings away, but actually it can really bring up a lot of love because um, that, that's really where the tears come from. It comes because we love that person so much. So I say, let the tears flow, let's get it all out, and, and let's do it ahead of time. I think you're absolutely right about having those conversations and the value in clarity. Yeah. Because with clarity comes a sense of calm. You don't have to wonder, do they want to be doped up on medication? Do they want to listen to their favorite music? Do they want everybody to visit? Do they want to be more uh, alone and just with one person at a time? And I think that by talking about all of those wants and needs and wishes, then everybody gets to be not just invested in the care in a, in a calm way, but also not to feel that desperation that I would imagine you felt with your mom. I mean, you were young then anyway, but nobody was really offering you any options. Right. I, I try to be the person for others now that I wish I would have had when I was going through the experience, somebody to kind of just maybe walk me, guide me a little bit and educate me a little bit on, on, on what could be done and how to make this um, not only, I mean, easier, yes, but um, I think a little bit of the sacredness was lost um, in the midst of the fear and the chaos of trying to just get things in order. Um, I look back on it now and I see a lot of missed opportunities that I may have had with her. Um, for example, even just, you know, I was afraid to touch her sometimes. And that's kind of what got me into this work of gentle touch massage for end of life. And I even um, will do some bedside training for caregivers on how to offer that gentle touch because they might be feeling a little um, nervous to touch their, their loved one in fear that they're going to hurt them or, you know, for some reason. But it can really help bring such a sense of connection at that time too. So just anything that I can offer families to help them feel more connected and less fearful and, and to really create that sacred space is, is really one of my goals. I like the word sacred. How, how is death something sacred? In so, well, in so many ways. I mean, we can look at it from a, a, perspective, a spiritual perspective, if, if that resonates with you. I think everybody has their own definition of sacredness depending on your religion or your beliefs. 
Um, but it is, it's really the great unknown, isn't it? Like we just, we don't know what lies beyond the veil, whatever that looks like or feels like or is to you. And I think there is something very sacred and, and special about the not knowing. That is really hard for most people. Yeah. The not knowing, that, that breeds a certain level of fear because they don't feel in control. Maybe they would go through these exercises with you and the conversations with you, then it would allow that sacredness to come through. Yeah, one of the tools sort of in my toolbox, maybe coming at it from a, of, of a point of curiosity instead of fear. And um, one, one thing that I do is guided visualizations at the end of life and really getting them to imagine what do they want it to feel like? Um, who are maybe if, if they believe that there are people on the other side waiting for them, who would they like to have welcome them when they first arrive? And that could just be such a, a beautiful thought, right? Like, you know, do they believe in angels? Um, maybe if, if they're, if, if they believe in angels or any sort of those types of figures, I'll bring them into the room and just whatever it is that brings them that sense of calm will invite them to be there for them in that space. And, um, so just things like that, that can kind of help take it from fear, you know, in that sense of fear to curiosity and more openness to the experience. You mentioned before that people tend to wait until they really get help. How, how can we urge people to get help sooner? Don't wait till the last minute. Because the person who's unwell is suffering. And I would imagine everybody around them is suffering because you, you don't want that person you love to suffer. Right, yeah, so there's, I mean, for one thing, it should really be the person who is unwell making their own decisions. And sadly, when it gets to a point in their disease process, there's going to become a time where they can no longer really speak for themselves and, and really advocate for themselves. So somebody else is going to have to speak on, on their behalf. Um, so that's one aspect of it. But the other thing is, is that, you know, we, at any age, something could happen to us, not just in our elderly years. You know, we're not all fortunate enough to live to the age of, you know, 85 or 95. Um, I um, get questions from folks in their 30s and their 40s asking, you know, um, maybe they're, they're wanting to plan for a family. Um, or they have young children and, and they're thinking about all of these things of what would happen if something happened to me and God forbid our other, the other parent, um, who, what would happen to our kids? And so I can kind of, as a doula, I, I help them kind of think about those scenarios and just, you know, I know it's nothing that we want to think about, but I mean, if you really look at the, the consequences of not planning ahead, um, and this actually happened in our family too, where my brother did end up in foster care. Um, so these things are very real and they're just things that we want to think about ahead of time so that, you know, we just, we make sure that when we do go, whenever that is, that we're not leaving behind sort of a chaotic mess that everybody else has to clean up. I have a small point of information that here in Indiana, and I think other states have something similar to this, there is a very basic form called a post form, Physician's Orders for Scope of Treatment. And it basically has four questions on it. And it's specific to medical care. It is not specific to hospice care per se or having a doula or any other end of life issues. But it does ask you 
the basic question. Do you want to be resuscitated? Do you want to be intubated? Do you want a feeding tube put in? And do you want medication to sustain your life or for palliative reasons? And I think that if you're willing to have at least that beginning conversation with your doctor, who has to also sign the form, then you're starting on that road to dealing with some of those bigger, deeper, even more sacred issues that come around death and dying. Yeah, um, I just add that a little clarity with the difference in the forms. So the post form that you're referring to, that really doesn't come into effect until um, somebody is really in their um, later end of life stages of, of a terminal illness. Um, and that's when you're, the doctor is really wanting to certify that, yes, we're not going to, you know, do CPR compressions on a 95-year-old woman with cancer or COPD or, or something along those lines. Um, but something more relevant to maybe somebody our age or who's not necessarily dealing with a life-threatening illness today um, would be going over and filling out your, your living will or your advanced directives. Um, which includes your, so advanced directives are a couple of forms. It's the living will and the health care power of attorney. And those are the forms that I always suggest people, you know, get started filling out and, and, and completing those and having them witnessed and making sure you know exactly where they are um, is really important too because, you know, they're not going to do you any good if they're locked away in a safe in the basement when you need them. <laughs> so. Absolutely, and give copies. And give copies, to absolutely. The important people. I was told, put a copy of your living will, your post form, anything like that, put a copy in a Ziploc bag in your freezer. Yes, that's what I was gonna say. Yes. I'm so glad you, you've you heard that. Yeah, yes. that's exactly what I was gonna if, suggest. If you end up calling you know, an ambulance or you have an emergency situation, you could you get to the freezer and have that form. Yes. Because I think I think your example of you know a 95 year old person who's unwell already why why intervene? But sadly, without that paperwork, yeah, they will, they will, and there's you know some really sad examples of of, of bad end of life experiences because of that, or people on feeding tubes who, you know, or or breathing machines who did not want that, but they didn't have their wishes in writing, and and then you get in with family. Um, disagreements where maybe the siblings don't agree, um, and that does happen. So this is just a way that there's no question. <laughs> you know, mom and dad was very clear that they did not want to be put on a breathing machine or you know whatever that intervention is, and, and this is how they want it to go. Um, and really, you need to make sure that whoever is um, your healthcare power of attorney speaking on your behalf is is comfortable you know, advocating for that decision because we like to assume that our spouse, just because they're our spouse, is going to be our healthcare power of attorney, but maybe they're not because they really, they wouldn't be able to, to make that decision and maybe they'd want to sort of keep you around longer. So just, these are really important. This is why the conversation is so important and identifying who will really be able to, to, to execute that end of life wish for you. You don't want somebody who's uncomfortable and doesn't want to be the one who says, we're stopping treatment yeah. or I'm signing, you know, we're applying for hospice care or whatever it is. I think if you're uncomfortable with that, you're not the right person. Right. Do you think this is an American thing that we have such a hard time 
being out of control or facing death? Yes, yes I do. Um, and I think it's because technology has come very, very far um, in regards to how we can keep people alive much longer than we could a hundred years ago. Um, a hundred years ago, we were much more accustomed to seeing people, our life expectancy was in our thirties. Um, you know, childhood mortality rates were very high because of simple things that now we can cure, um, which is a blessing, you know, that we have these treatments and antibiotics and things that can, you know, help prevent um, diseases and things like that. But at the same time, it's really separated us from death. It's almost optional now to die. I mean, it's crazy to think about that, but you can really keep somebody alive you know, for a long time on these machines and, and does that make it right, you know? Um, but thinking about quality of life now is something that we didn't really have to have that conversation a hundred years ago about quality of life, where now, you know, we really do have to think about that. But I know there are other countries who are much more comfortable with these conversations. For example, in Australia, it's um, very commonplace to have an end-of-life doula, but that is changing. And we're seeing a lot more movements in, the, in, in advancing end-of-life advocacy and education in our communities where people are learning about end-of-life doulas and are getting curious about it. Um, and one thing I, I want people to know is you don't necessarily have to be a certified end-of-life doula you know, to, to provide the type of support that is needed um, to care for somebody who's dying. But you just might need some skills and some in learning and some education. And I really encourage that everybody gets some sort of at least basic knowledge and skills on how to care for somebody because it's, it's something we're all gonna eventually have to do. And I'm really all about putting the power back into your hands, you know, instead of we constantly give it away, you know, to the health, to the quote unquote healthcare professionals to sort of come in and do the work for us um, when there's it's, it can be really in a very empowering thing to, to really take a little bit more control of that as a family, in my opinion. I think that's an excellent suggestion. Angela, if someone would like to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Um, the best way is probably through email. And my email address is newdawncomfortcare at gmail.com. And you can also find me on social media. Um, I have a Facebook group called the Indie End of Life Collective, um, which we're sort of a, a network of um, professional and non-professional um, end of life care providers. Um, we have funeral directors, um, folks who are grief coaches and counselors, um, as well as just you know community individuals who just want to learn more about this work um, and better educate themselves in their communities. So I invite you to you know, come check us out at the Indie End of Life Collective as well. I appreciate that you're working to help ease somebody into whatever is beyond the veil. Thank you, Angela. I deeply appreciate you being Thank on the you. show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Are you dealing with anxiety, pain, insomnia, or inflammation? If so, then CBD may be the answer you are seeking. At CBD Jubilee, we understand that you may have tried many different supplements and medications without success. CBD is a different kind of supplement. It works on a system in your body to get your whole self back in balance. We hope you will come talk to us at 6418 Carrollton Avenue in Broad Ripple. 
or you may check out our website, cbdjubilee.com. Thanks for tuning in. Please join us next week for a new edition of Ask the Resource Queen. Ask the Resource Queen.